I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. All right, welcome back in Inside Sources as we play hot potato with who's we going to welcome we us back. Uh, I'll do it. Fine. I'll do it. <laughs> How's that? Uh, Leah Murray from Weber State University. Uh, Marty Carpenter sitting in today for Boyd. And uh, as we went to break, we teed this up a little bit that the journalists at the New York Times, which is sort of a broader group, uh, including like, I guess, people who probably put together the Wordle <laughs> or maybe yeah, included but in I, that. No, but I think it's not just journalists, right? It's also all their employees. Okay. Right. So it's like their IT support, right? So, yeah. Yeah. So, from threats of a nationwide rail strike to walkouts at the Salt Lake City Starbucks, uh, you might say this is the year for unions, at least for unions to go on strike. So, now journalists are striking at the New York Times today. That's 1,100 employees who staged a walkout from their jobs. Why they do it, what's going on, and the lessons that can be learned from this case when it comes to unions and companies. Yeah. And we've got Alahi. Azadi, who is a reporter covering media for the Washington Post. Um, she co-hosts the daily flagship podcast, Post Reports, to help us figure out what's going on. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So you just tell us, what prompted this workout at the New York Times today? Yeah, of course. So it's a 24-hour work stoppage. And really, a week ago, more than a 1,000 New York Times employees, which you mentioned, isn't just journalists. It includes security guards. It includes, you know, the people moderating the comments on the comment section. They sent a letter to their management, to their senior executives, saying, if we don't reach a contract, a deal on our employee contract in a week, we're going to walk out. And so they made good on their threat. They made good on that promise, um, you know, since they sent that letter and, and really the heart of, of what they're upset about is compensation. They have been negotiating with their management for about 20 months now. Their old contract expired in March 2021. And so since then, they've been, you know, employees and, and unions and their and management always negotiate about all sorts of things, benefits, you know, performance reviews. And that's certainly what they're talking about here. But right now, it's really coming down to compensation. And if I had to sum up the argument that employees are making to the company is that, look, right now, the media industry suffering a lot. You know, other companies are laying off hundreds of people, aren't posting profits, but the New York Times is actually doing really well, and it's doing well in part because of our labor, and we want to be compensated appropriately. So I find that interesting. That it, I don't I want to make sure I understand this correctly. It's not just yeah, the reporters. It's all personnel within the building then? And do they, are, are there some crossovers or like a Venn diagram where some of those groups are represented by their specific trade unions, but they're working 
essentially together only within the organization of the New York Times. Can you just help clarify that for me a little bit? For sure. So the New York Times, like a lot of other media companies that are represented by unions, sometimes those unions include non-newsroom employees because it's not just the newsroom that goes into making the company work. At the New York Times, some of the departments that are included in what's called the New York Times Guild includes the advertising department, the people who are responsible for putting on their live events, security guards. Now, there is another or a, like sort of separate but included publication at the New York Times called Wirecutter. And then there's also tech workers. And those those groups have their own union shop. So it's, it's a separate group. And, and those groups have said, you know, we the tech workers have tried to organize in the past and they've, they've run into difficulties. Wirecutter, which you might be familiar with, you know, these are people who post consumer reviews. They have their own separate union and they've expressed solidarity with the New York Times Guild. But yes, the New York Times Guild is about 1,400 workers. It does include non-newsroom departments and it does not include many international staffers. So that's also an important thing to point out because if you were to visit the New York Times website today, which the striking employees would rather you not do, you might see a lot of articles written by international employees because they are not, you know, part of this. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. All right, so I'm thinking the reason why this is an issue, having read your article, is people trying to live in New York City just can't survive on whatever salary, right, that's being paid, and that the journalists who are maybe, you know, the famous journalists you've heard of, right, are trying to stand in solidarity with their colleagues who really cannot afford, like in your article says, they're taking second jobs or they're dipping into retirement just to survive living in New York City. Do I have that right, that, that that's why they can't come to an agreement? Well, that's part of the, the issue that the striking employees are, are saying is at, at, at the heart of this, that, yes, New York, City is, New York City is one of the most expensive cities in the world, and they want wages and an annual raise that is at least matching inflation or cost of living increase. And they're saying this is a long-term sustainability issue because, you know, how are you going to attract young people who come from not affluent backgrounds to these sorts of jobs? And then also one of the other issues here is they argue that in leaner times, you know, the company cut back, there were furloughs, there, you know, there was belt tightening previously. And so some longer time employees who maybe are names that people would recognize are dealing with stagnant wages. Now, I have to say at this point, the company has argued that they already offer best in class pay and benefits that, you know, the union has said they're not arguing in good faith, but they would say they are arguing, uh, sorry, not arguing, negotiating, negotiating in good faith. And that the company says, well, we are, and we want a good, fair contract, but we also need to have financial stewardship of this company. And yes, we are doing well, but we want to make it long-term viability that requires us to not, you know, agree to some of these proposals. And they're about like, you know, 
on wages, it's about 2.8% is what the company is on average uh, saying that they would agree to on a yearly raise. And the employees are requesting around 5.25, so it's about double. So, so they're still quite a ways away from each other on that. So you mentioned it's like a 24-hour walkout, and a walkout of any size is kind of like you know, pushing your chips all into the center. Uh, is this going to be effective? Do you expect there will be some movement in the negotiations off of this, or do they just all show up back to work tomorrow like nothing happened? Yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll be so curious to see the tomorrow how, how things will feel and play out, because not every single person participated in this. It is a huge number, but... Moving forward, I would say that at other companies that unions have exercised this sort of, you know, pretty dramatic move. This this hasn't happened at the time for decades. Um, But if we look at a place like The New Yorker, they also had a day-long work stoppage several years ago. And then a year or two after that, they authorized an indefinite strike. And that threat kind of pushed negotiations towards a conclusion. And so I'm not saying that's necessarily what's going to happen at the time, but the next step here would be whether these employees decide to vote to authorize an indefinite strike. And so, you know, it's like everyone, right? You, me, Congress, everybody. A deadline really pushes people <laughs> to, 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 find, to find common ground where there is none. And so I think this threat of creating this deadline of December 8th pushed negotiations further, but they reached this impasse and the, the guild felt necessary that they had to make good on their threat. Elahi Azadi, reporter for The Washington Post, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, I'm just so intrigued by, you know, your point, I thought, was well taken. So it's the day, right? You know, yeah. I'm coming back tomorrow. Um, but I like what she said that maybe it does push you towards that deadline. It, you feel the crunch of it. And so that you come back to the bargaining table. Feels kind of like they may have played their trump card, though, right? Yeah, like, maybe. okay, we walked out. We've made it through a day without you. We s- maybe, maybe, maybe it shows you, hey, things run smoother when we're around. And so we go in that direction. Right. I don't know. I guess we'll see how it shakes out. Tomorrow, I'll read the Wall Street Journal in the morning, and you can try to read the New York Times if you get a chance. I'll let you know and what I, it looks like. I know like, mine's yeah. going to be there. I don't know about, about you. Hey, coming up, we take a deeper look at Gen Z's views on religious freedom. Can't wait. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story the struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.